book of the Bible. You know where Exodus is. While you're turning there, just real quickly, um, I want to announce a couple things that are coming up and just give you a quick reminder. And that is on Saturday, there is a Koinonia group that is meeting in, in fellowship and uh, hosted by Jerry and Sandy Sanders. And uh, their address is there in the bulletin, 630. Is that a potluck? That's a potluck. So um, that's something for you guys to enjoy, and uh, they'd love to have you out there. There are maps to the Sanders house at the information desk if you need that. And then also Sunday morning, 8.30, 10.30, we'll be in Matthew, and uh, we will finish Chapter 8, which I intended to last week, and, uh, but Andrew took up all of my time. <laughs> he um, was here for a wedding. Um, John's son got married, and I was doing the wedding. He was here, and he said, you know, I'd love to share just a little bit to the you know, group about to watch, and, you know, the parents can see. I got just a couple slides, and I said, sure, 10 minutes. So 25 minutes later. We received a lot of information, didn't we? So anyway, um, we'll be back on track this Sunday as we'll move into Chapter 9 and, and just some really neat um, things that we're going to see as we continue to see the compassion and love of Jesus Christ towards us uh, through the Scriptures. And so 8.30, 10.30, Sunday night is 6.30 is the baptism over at Centennial Pool. And um, so we have a number of people that are going to get baptized and come out and, and join us. We'll have a swim time afterwards. Uh, the weather's supposed to be warm. And, um, but the main reason we're doing it is for the baptism. And it's always just a neat time. Even if you don't plan on swimming, just want to come out and, um, and just watch the baptism. It's a real special time. And uh, so Centennial Pool is just right over here off 23rd Avenue and Reservoir Road. And we'll be there baptizing people. And um, 6.30 to 8.30 is the time, and uh, again, swim time afterwards. So um, we're looking forward to that. All right? So everything else is in your bulletin. And Father, we thank you again that we're here. And we ask that you would just bless this study. And Lord, that um, we would just make application that would encourage us. And Lord, that we would see your faithfulness once again. And, and Lord, uh, that we would just draw um, just more in love with you um, as we look at these uh, pages of scripture and, and as we see uh, how you just showed your faithfulness to your people and how you desire for us to just see again your compassion and your workings in our lives and it's in Jesus name that we pray amen it was in John chapter 5 that Jesus said that you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life but these are they which testify of me in other words what he was saying is is that the Old Testament scriptures, he was talking to the religious, religious leaders that studied the Old Testament scriptures, and they studied the scriptures frontward and backwards. They knew every dot and tittle of the Old Testament. And he said, but they testify of me. And, and what he was saying is that as you go through the Old Testament, of course, it would be the prophets that came on the scene, and they spoke about the coming of Messiah. But we also know that as we look at the Old Testament as well, that there's beautiful pictures and portraits and illustrations that point to Jesus Christ. And a lot of Christians miss that because they don't, you know, really um, read the Old Testament much of it or, or place much of an emphasis, many churches in the Old Testament. And uh, all of the scriptures, of course, speaks of Jesus from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And, of course, we have seen that very clearly as we've been going through the book of Exodus. 
And of course, as we saw that it would be uh, the Lord that would say uh, to Moses, Moses, I am going to redeem my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt with outstretched arm. And, and we know that we have been redeemed from the world, Egypt being a picture of the world. With, you know, and it was a picture of, as he's, the Lord said that to Moses, how Jesus has redeemed us from the world as Jesus with outstretched arms on Calvary died for you and for me that we might have forgiveness of sin and that we can have uh, salvation and reconciliation with the Father. We saw that last and final plague that would come down upon Egypt, the death of the firstborn, and we saw that at that time, that at the beginning of months, that the Passover there was instituted. It was really the birth of a nation um, at that time. And Passover was instituted, and you were to take a lamb, of course, as the Lord instructed the children of Israel, and they were to uh, slay that lamb, and they were to take the blood of the lamb and spread it upon the door. And when the, the, the angel passed over, thus the name Passover, and saw that the blood had been applied, then uh, they would escape death. And so... We know that Jesus is our Passover, as the New Testament says. He's a fulfillment of the Passover. He's our Passover lamb. As he was a, the perfect lamb of God without spot and blemish that was sacrificed for you and for me. And as we apply the blood in our lives, of course, we don't experience eternal death but eternal life. And so all these wonderful pictures and illustrations that we see of Jesus, and we continue to see it even as uh, we saw last week. We ended in chapter 16 as uh, the children of Israel are out in the wilderness, and they're hungry. And so God provided manna for them, and manna means what is it? And so we saw a little bit of a description of manna given to us in chapter 16 of Exodus. And we know that they were to go out each and every day, and they were to gather uh, a man's need, a person's need, or their family's need for that one day. And then on the sixth day they were to gather for two days because the sabbath day was to be a day of rest but we know that um that manna jesus would talk about in john chapter six as he said that your fathers ate manna out in the wilderness but they are dead and and i am the true bread that has come from heaven i am the bread of life would be that wonderful declaration that he would make and whoever eats of me believes in me will have eternal life shall never hunger and so we see that the, that the manna speaks of jesus christ and even as we move into chapter 17 we're going to see that the water is going to speak of jesus christ as well so let's read chapter 17 as then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on a journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in uh, Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The children of Israel have been out of Egypt for a fairly short time. Chapter 16 marks the one month that they have been out of the land of Egypt. And already we have seen that there have been, uh, on a number of occasions, when they came to the waters of Marah, they were thirsty there, and they began to complain against Moses. And, and we see that they were complaining in chapter 16 against Moses and Aaron about they were hungry. And, and then, once again, we see in chapter 17, they're complaining um, and continuing their murmuring. And so here is Moses saying, why are you complaining? 
complaining against me. And, and they are saying that, Moses, you are the one that brought us out into the wilderness to die out here. It would have been a whole lot better if we were back in Egypt. And so that was a common complaint of the children of Israel. And so we've already discussed that when we get into the, or have a spirit of murmuring and complaining, what happens is it really clouds our judgment. It really uh, warps our uh, spiritual uh, perspective on things. And, and so that's what has happened here. The children of Israel are in an area where it's very, very hot. It's very dry. They're in Arabia, according to Galatians. That's where the mountain of God is. And um, they're in that hot desert. And it's extremely hot and dry and barren there. And of course they're going to be uh, ones that are very thirsty. They had been already to the waters of Mara, as we saw uh, in chapter 15 there. And the waters were bitter there. And they complained to Moses at that time. And Moses was told to throw, what, a tree into the water. And the waters were made sweet. Mara means bitter. But as Moses threw that tree in, as the Lord said... And the waters was made sweet. And again, it's a picture of Jesus because life is bitter, isn't it? And, and because in this world that is a fallen creation and sin and death has entered into this world, we experience the bitterness of sin and the bitterness of death. But the thing is, as we look to the tree of Calvary, Jesus makes it sweet for us, doesn't he? Because he has saved us and he's forgiven us. Again, a wonderful portrait and illustration and a picture of what Jesus has done for us as we look at the Old Testament scriptures in the book of Exodus. So that water has run out. And here they are, once again, complaining. And here's the thing to remember, that they were told here... Um, in verse 1, the children of Israel sent out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord. The Lord told them, this is where you are to go. And so here they are doubting the provision of the Lord already once again. And the thing for you and I to keep in mind as his children, when he gives us a commandment, when he tells us to go this way, that he's going to provide for us, that he is, has a purpose and he has a plan, and he isn't just going to leave us out there to where he forgets about us. But here he told them to go, and they're thirsting, they're crying out, they're, they're once again saying to Moses, why did you bring us out here and to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? In verse 4, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people they are almost ready to stone me so Moses you know he is showing to be a leader he does the right thing and that is he cries out to the Lord now Moses at this time it's been a little over a month he's I think already ready to to hand this ministry this job over to somebody else because they're wanting to stone him can you imagine two to three million people coming at you and complaining and murmuring I mean that would be pretty tough but Moses, again, he would go to the Lord. And we see in verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod in which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there in the rock of Horeb, and, I will, and you will strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. A couple things here. Moses, I still want you to lead. As you cry out to me, I want you to go before the people. And we've talked about this as we've seen this, and it's something that keeps jumping out at me, that even in the difficulties and the trials, that we're to go forward. We're to continue to lead. Lead your families and, and lead in the place that you work. The ministry that God has given to you, you are to lead. So Moses, you go before the people. But here's something for you and I to always remember. 
when we are leading and it's difficult and it's hard. Because, Lord, maybe I don't want to go before the people. Maybe I don't want to lead anymore. And that is verse 6. The Lord says, I will stand before you. And that's something for you and I to never forget. Because there are times where, you know what, this is going to be hard. And I don't really feel you like leading today at work at the workplace or leading my family today in devotions or leading this Bible study or this home fellowship. I don't feel like leading whatever it might be. And the Lord says, I want you to go, but I want you to remember something that I stand before you. And that's why we discussed on Sunday morning that he would tell that one individual as he was talking to him about discipleship that you put your hand to the plow and you don't look back. But you keep looking forward to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so we don't look back, as Paul would say, that I press on forward. I forget those things which are behind, and I press forward to the goal of the prize of the high calling of Christ Jesus. And so we are to move forward. Go before the people that you lead that are linked to you in your life and understand that the Lord stands before you. And I am so glad that the Lord is there, that I can look to him and I can focus on him, and I can draw from him. And so here what you are to do, Moses, is you are to take your staff, and you are to strike the rock. And again, it's a picture and illustration of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that Paul says that that rock was Christ. And the thing is, is that here is Moses, he's told to strike the rock, and the water would come forth. And Jesus, of course, in the New Testament, in John chapter 6, he said to the people, not only eat of me, but drink of me. He who, who eats of me shall never hunger, and, and he who drinks of me shall never thirst. And so we come, and as we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, putting our faith in him, turning to him, we know that we are going to have eternal life, as the scripture promises us. But we also know as Christians that as we continue to come to him, because Jesus would say to that woman there uh, at the well in Samaria, that if you drink of the living water that I have to give to you, you will never thirst again. He would even say to the people up in, in the Galilee region in John chapter 6, if you drink of me, you'll never thirst thirst again and what he was saying in that is that all of us thirst all of us thirst in our soul and in our spirit and the thing is what are you drinking from the well of the world Jesus said to the Samaritan woman you drink of that well and you're going to thirst again you're going to have to keep coming back but if you drink of the living water that I have give to you you'll never thirst again and as we come to him and we're saved and forgiven and we belong to him, then he desires for us to be ultimately fulfilled and satisfied and have joy and peace in our lives. People are drinking from the well of whatever it might be, the well of prosperity or greed or, or you know, drugs or whatever to find satisfaction and fulfillment in their lives and they're not finding it. It's only in a close relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this water here that would be given, and of course, here is Moses. He would strike the rock. It was later on, and we're going to see this in the book of Numbers, towards the end of this 40-year exodus, that the people once again were thirsty, and they cried out to Moses, Moses, we're thirsty. And so the Lord told Moses, speak to the rock, and the water is going to come forth. And so apparently he was to strike the rock here, but then afterwards simply speak to the rock and the water would come forth. But what did Moses do? He took his staff and he struck the rock twice. And the Lord said, Moses, come here. I need to talk to you. You misrepresented me. I wasn't angry at the people. The people were thirsty. And so Moses, you're not going to go into the promised land. 
And you see, Jesus Christ was stricken once and for all for the sins of humanity. He, was, he died on Calvary's cross for our sins. He was smitten once, and now we cry out to him, Lord, as we come to him in faith and as we call upon his name. And so, again, that beautiful picture that we have. And so, verse 7, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And so... We see here, uh, Masa means tempted, they tempted God. Meribah means contention, because they had an attitude of contending rather than trusting in the Lord. And always remember, as you've heard me say, and it's a famous saying of Pastor Chuck, that he says, where God guides, he's going to provide for you. And we can trust in his promises and know that he's going to provide. And we can say, Lord, you have me here where you have guided me and where you have directed me. And I've, I've desired to walk in your ways and, and go the way that you want me to, that he's there with us and he's never going to leave us or forsake us. And we can trust in him and rest in him. But the children of Israel struggled in that. So verse 8, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Repadim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hurd went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hurd supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. In verse 13, so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. A couple things that we see here. First, Amalek, who is he? You probably remember, I'm sure that you do, Genesis chapter 36. In the genealogy of Esau, he is the grandson of Esau. You remember Esau in the book of Genesis? He's the brother of who? Of Jacob. So there was Abraham who had a son Isaac. He married Rebekah. Rebekah conceived and she uh, felt this warring going on in her womb. And so she inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said that you have two nations in you, Rebekah. And it's going to be that the older is going to serve the younger. And so it would be that covenant that did not go through Esau, the, the older of the twins, but it would go through Jacob, who was born after Esau. And of course, we know from the book of Genesis, and Hebrews confirms it, that it was Esau that was only concerned about fleshly things, concerned about, um, you know, he, he would sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. Um, he was one that wasn't concerned about the spiritual things. So the covenant would go through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Esau would be the father of the Edomites. And we know that his son would have a son named Amalek. And it would be according to Deuteronomy chapter 25 that the, Am the Amalekites would sneak up on the rear of the children of Israel and they would pick off the weak. They would pick off the stragglers. And, and, and they would kill the, the children of Israel. Just kept being a plague to them while they're in the wilderness wandering, kept doing battle with the children of Israel. And so as we look at Amalek, Amalek is a picture of the flesh. Because you see, when we're struggling, and when we're weak, and when we're just kind of lagging behind, that's when the flesh can rear its ugly head, isn't it? 
And so Amalek is a picture of the flesh as we look at this. And so here we see that Amalek is doing battle here with the children of Israel out in the wilderness wandering. Also we notice here that Joshua, this is the first time that Joshua is mentioned, and Joshua in, is called Moses' assistant. So Joshua would be one for 40 years. He's assisting Moses. He's doing battle with Amalek. He's the one that's going to sit at the base of the mountain while Moses is on top of the mountain receiving the law of God. Joshua, for 40 years, is faithful to serving Moses and faithful to serving the Lord. And, of course, it would then be Joshua that lead the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And Joshua was a man of great faith, and Joshua was a man that had great victory in his life because he stood firm uh, in the promises of God. And, and it would be in the second year of the Exodus that we're going to see that the children of Israel go up to the border of the promised land and God says, take the land, I've given you the land. And so they sent spies into the land, 12 of them. They come back, they have these huge grapes and, and they, the 12 spies, they're in the promised land for 40 days, come back and say, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's true. Look at these huge grapes that we're carrying. And the fruit is abundant, but there's large cities and there's giants in the land, and we're back grasshoppers in their sight. So Joshua and Caleb would stand up and said, let's go. God's given us the land. He promised us. Let's go, you know, eat them up, and, um, and let's go get them. The other ten spies and the rest of the children of Israel said, we're going to die. We can't go in. We're going to be killed. And so God said, for the next you know, total 40 years, you're going to be in the wilderness until a new generation goes in. And so Joshua, after 40 years of faithfully serving Moses, being his assistant and doing battle, is going to have great things that, that he's going to be able to do for the Lord as he leads the children of Israel. And you say, I want to remind you of that. Because Joshua was a servant. And God was preparing him. And just as Moses was, what, 40 years herding sheep on the backside of the mountain before God came to him and said, Moses, now I want you to go because I've heard the cries of my people to Pharaoh and you're going to be used by me to free the children of Israel out of Egypt. And for 40 years, Joshua is doing battle. Joshua is sitting at the base of the mountain. He's faithful. He's, he's a man that expects great things from God. He, he just is being used where God has him. He wasn't sitting there at the base of the mountain saying, how come Moses gets to go up there and, you know, and get all the fun stuff and see the awesomeness of God and receive the law of God? How come I have to sit down here day after day? But he was faithful in the little things. And God gave him greater things to do. And that's such an important principle for every single one of us who desire to be used of the Lord. You be faithful in the little things where God has you. And as you are faithful and just learning to be a servant, then God's going to give you greater things to do. So Joshua here, he's doing uh, this ministry and he's doing battle. And we know that it's Moses here. It's a familiar story as long as his hands are being held up on that hill. They're prevailing. But as he's holding his hands up, of course his arms would become heavy and they're going down and all of a sudden Amalek starts winning. So he puts them up, Israel's winning. They go down, Amalek's winning. And all of a sudden somebody gets a clue. Hey Moses, as long as you got your arms up, we're winning. So they put a stone under him and it was Ur and Aaron that came along and held his arms up. Another very important principle of ministry. You know, one of the things that's been a tremendous blessing for me 
and those who have come along and helped hold my arms up as the Lord has called me to pastor this church. And as Moses was called to, to, to lead the children of Israel, it's a picture of prevailing prayer is what we see here, but also a picture of those who would be next to him and holding his arms up. And I'm so appreciative to those who come along because ministry can be tiring and the arms start coming down. And, and those who come along and just says, you know what, we're going to hold your arms up is a tremendous blessing. It's a tremendous blessing to any of us who minister in any ways. And that's what this thing called the church really is about, for us to edify each other and to care for each other and exhort each other and to hold each other's arms up and to really be a blessing to one another. So here Moses' his arms are up, and, and as long as his arms are up, again, a picture of prevailing prayer. And you see, as long as you and I continue to be lifting our hands up to the Lord and keep our focus on the Lord, you know what? the flesh is going to be defeated. But as soon as we let our arms down and we stop praying and we're not listening to the Lord and looking to the Lord, the flesh is going to start to have victory. But I also notice something else here as I think about here's Moses with outstretched arm and two others on each side. It's also another picture of Jesus Christ who on another hill with his arms outstretched gave us ultimate victory as he died between two thieves on a hill and as he died for you and for me we have ultimate victory and you see not only are we free from the penalty of sin but the grip of sin in our lives as well as we turn to him and, and Lord by the power of your Holy Spirit working in my life as I yield to you and submit to you I don't have to be in bondage to the flesh I don't have to be in bondage to, to sin but Lord I am free to live for you in that newness of life and so a wonderful picture that we see here is they have victory. But also, here's one of the things that is kind of interesting as we look at the history of the Amalekites. Here we see that uh, we continue to read. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book of, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. They would have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And it would continue even up until the time that Saul was the first king of Israel. And as Saul was king, there in 1 Samuel chapter 15, then the Lord said, Saul, I remember what Amalek did to the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So I'm going to finally deal with them. So Saul, I want you to gather up all the troops. Saul would gather over 200,000 men, 1 Samuel chapter 15 says. And I want you to utterly destroy all of the Amalekites. I want you to utterly destroy them, every single one of them. Even their sheep, their oxen, their cattle. Nothing left. So Saul, the trumpet is blown. He takes 210,000 foot soldiers. He does battle with the Amalekites. It says that he utterly destroyed them with the sword, except... Agai, king of the Amalekites. He brings him back as a trophy. And he takes some of the best of the sheep and the oxen and he brings them back. And so as he's making his journey back, Samuel the prophet gets a revelation from the Lord. The Lord says, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has disobeyed me, Samuel. And you go out and you meet Saul and you tell him that the kingdom is being taken away from him and I'm going to give it to another, another that has a heart after me, of course, speaking of David. 
So Samuel goes out to meet Saul, and Saul's dancing is a great celebration. And Saul comes running up to Samuel and says, I performed all that the Lord has commanded me. Samuel says, really? Then what's the sound of sheep that I hear in my ears? Oh, that's, that's you know, some of the best of the sheep and oxen that we kept so we can sacrifice. You see, it was Saul that always wanted to look good before the people, but his heart wasn't right with the Lord. He disobeyed the Lord. And we know that it would be Samuel that would say, well, then who's this? Well, that's Agai. He's the king of the Amalekites. I brought him back as a trophy. And Samuel would take Agai and execute him. And he would say that the kingdom's been taken away from you, Saul, and it's better to obey than to sacrifice. Here's the interesting thing. About 15 years later, David has to do battle with the Amalekites. The Amalekites come in and take, as he's there in the country of the Philistines, he's running from Saul. He's there in, in his mighty men, and they're off, and the Amalekites come up and take their wives, their possessions, burn their homes. It would be a short time right after that that Saul goes to battle, and he's killed him and his son Jonathan, as you read 1 Samuel chapter 31, the last chapter of 1 Samuel. And there Saul is killed. And it tells the story, and it continues to give us some further insight as you move into the first chapter of 2 Samuel, as there was a messenger that came back to David and told how Saul was killed, that how he was wounded, and he fell on a sword, and it didn't do him in, and his armor-bearer was there, and he was struck dead as he fell on his sword. And so this young man goes up to Saul, and, and Saul says, I want you to kill me because I don't want to fall into the hands of the Philistines. So the young man says to David, I took my sword out and I killed Saul, the king of Israel. David says, who are you? He says, I'm an Amalekite. Here's the thing, folks. A lot of times as Christians, we say, I do most everything that the Lord tells me to do. But I got this little agai in my life. I got this one little fleshly thing in my life I, I, I kind of haven't had the Lord deal with. I like to have it in my life to kind of fulfill my flesh and stuff. Oh, nobody really sees it. Nobody knows about it. But, you know, I, I, for the most part, I'm okay. But there's one area perhaps in your life that you need to repent from, an area of the flesh. Maybe there's an area of your life that you struggle with. You haven't given it to the Lord. And you have an agai. And I will say this, because the scripture gives us the picture, and his word is true, that it'll come back and it'll get you. If you have any agais in your life, you need to repent and give it to the Lord. Because it'll come back and it'll do you in. And you'll end up doing battle with it. As the years go on, the weeks, months, years Pretty soon, it'll wipe you out. It'll come back and affect your homes and your family, and it'll hold you captive. Just ask David. That's what he had to do battle against the Amalekites because Saul did not do them in as God said, and Saul ended up being done in by an Amalekite. And it's the same with you and me. Do you see why the Lord tells us that we're to walk in holiness? He doesn't say that to us to be a killjoy in our lives. He says that to us so we can be free, 
so we can be free to live for him. And we don't go through the hurt and the pain and the bondage that sin does and the flesh will hold us in. So any agonies in your life, slay it. Give it to the Lord. Die to self, cry out to him, and allow him to work in your life. Verse, or chapter 18, very quickly. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses, for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was uh, Eliezer. Um, and he said, God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So Moses had two sons. We read about his wife, Zipporah, clear back in the early part of the book of Exodus. And we note that one of his sons were listed there in Exodus chapter 4. You recall that it was Moses coming to Egypt after he had received the calling of God to go there. He's going with his wife, and we know that it was God that came to, to Moses in kind of that weird event or strange event it seemed like there in Exodus chapter 4 where God struck Moses and was going to kill him. And so Paro, his wife, knew what was going on because she grabs her son and cuts his foreskin, circumcises him, throws it at Moses and says, You're a bloody husband to me. And what was going on was apparently Moses did not circumcise his son as he was supposed to according to the covenant of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. And we talked about all that what was going on. Moses, how can you go and how can you lead my children, the children of Israel, and deal with them when you haven't even dealt with your own children and done what I've told you to do in leading them? So Moses has two sons and are named after different events, uh, significant events that happened in Moses' life. Uh, Gershom, I'm a stranger in a foreign land. And then also Eliezer, the God of my father, was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Verse 5, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I am your father-in-law Jethro, and coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So remember Moses was in this area, mountain of God, for 40 years working for his father-in-law Jethro, herding sheep. So Jethro hears Moses and the children of Israel are back into the land. I'm going to come with your wife and two sons. Now at that time of Exodus chapter 4, we don't know if Sapporo would then take her, her son or her two sons at that time and go back to Midian. There's no record of them being in Egypt, so maybe that perhaps is the case. They haven't seen Moses for about a year um, or so since he went to Egypt. In verse 7, so Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and, asked, um, and they asked each other, about their well-being, and they went into the tent. So their customary greeting, uh, they said hello and patted each other on the back and went and caught up on everything, verse 8. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, how the Lord had delivered them. I would have loved to have sat in on that conversation. Wouldn't you? I mean, we we're reading about what happened to Pharaoh, and, but I'm sure Moses added some details. And he would have said, whoa, man, that hail and those locusts and, and you know, the, the sea parting. And I would have loved to have been on, on that conversation, listening to how the Lord just worked in such a wonderful, powerful way. 
And so we see, verse 9, Jethro rejoiced in all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. And then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so we see here that after this, we see that Jethro, he's rejoicing. In verse 11 here, uh, he is or saying that I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Maybe this confession of faith that he is making, it could be that Jethro, being from Midian, was one that was polytheistic in his religion, that is, believed in many gods, because that's the way it was in Egypt, that's the way it was with the other nations. And you recall that the Lord said to Moses that the Egyptians and the nations are going to see how I've redeemed you and how I've dealt with Egypt that I am truly the Lord. And so this is true what is coming to pass as Jethro realizes that I know now that he is the Lord and he would give burnt offerings to him and other sacrifices of worship to him. So very well becoming a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so um, we see verse 13, And it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit, and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, This thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. And so we see here that all of a sudden Jethro notices something. Moses is sitting from early morning till night, judging the people. They're lined up. And can you imagine two to three million people? You're, you're, you're teaching them the, the, the statutes and the things of God, but also what is happening is they're coming to Moses to settle disputes. You know, the neighbor has a tent next to me. You know, we got a dispute or something's going on. So what do we do? So they're lined up all day long. And Jethro sees it and he says, Moses, why do you sit alone? This isn't good. You can't do this. This is inefficient. You're going to wear yourself out. And also, as we see that um, in verse 18, that not only you are going to wear yourself out, but you are going to wear the people out. Because you're not settling things in an orderly fashion, in, in, in a quick manner. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus said, settle things quickly. But here, can you imagine being in line all day long and all the people in front of you? And you know, there's like five people left and all of a sudden Moses closed his shop for tonight. And you have to do it over again the next day. So Moses, this is inefficient. You can't do it. You can't settle all the disputes of the people all day long, day after day. And all these people that you're ministering to, it, it is too much. It's not going to work. It is not good that you are doing. So verse 19, listen now to my voice and I will give you counsel. And God be with you. Stand before God. 
for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that evening, or it will be that every great manner they shall bring to you, but every small manner they themselves shall judge. So it shall be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all the people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses, I'm going to give you some counsel. This is what you're to do. You're to continue to teach them the statutes and the laws. Show them the way to walk and the work that they are to do. So that's what you're to do, Moses. But you can't settle everybody's dispute. So what you're to do is select certain leaders over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. You are to delegate some of the responsibility to them. And these men were to serve, as we see, in various levels of varying degree. And these men that you are to select to be in leadership, to help you in the responsibilities of doing ministry, are to be able men, first of all, as we read here in verse 21. They are able men, that is, they are gifted. They are gifted and able to do the work. Second of all, we see that they are to be ones that fear God. Able men and fearing God, men of truth, and they're not greedy. That's who it is that you are to be selecting in that. And it's interesting because those qualifications are mentioned when you go to the New Testament and Paul's talking to Titus and to Timothy about qualifications of an elder. They are to be able men. They are to be ones that are men of the word, men of truth. They are to be not greedy. They are to be ones that fear God. They are to be ones that are above reproach and, and all the qualifications are there. And so these qualifications line up as you see the qualifications of elders, qualifications of deacons as well in leadership in the church that is given to us in the New Testament. Now it's interesting that Moses, you continue to teach the statutes. You are to teach them the, the way they are to walk and the work that they are to do. The others can do the work of the ministry. They also are going to be teaching. They're going to be applying the laws of God. They're going to be serving the people of God. And you see that takes place in the church today as well. In Acts chapter 6, it was the apostles that there, as the church was growing, there were certain needs. And so the apostles were called, and there were some widows that were being neglected. And there was a complaint about that in the distribution of food. And so it was the apostles that said, listen, we have given ourselves over to the study of the word and prayer. So they appointed who? The deacons. The first deacons that we have in the scriptures to serve those tables. It wasn't that the apostles weren't willing to do that. But they said, we have priorities, and that is, is that we need to be continuing in, in the study of the word and in prayer for the people. And so we're going to point, and you see again the qualifications in Acts chapter 6, about godly men, men who fear God, men who know the truth of God's word. All these things are important in selecting leadership to serve tables for the widows. And so deacon, of course, means a server. And the, and the qualifications are again given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3. One of the things for me is, is as the church grows, it, at the beginning, it, it was easier for me to be able to, to do the different aspects of ministry. But as the church grows, you know, I don't have two to three million people, obviously, a lot less. 
But you start getting into a few hundred people, however it is, it gets much, much harder. And so God raises up people to do the work of the ministry. And so we have the elders that are there to help with the spiritual overseeing of the church and, and, and teaching, others who have the gift of teaching and those who serve in different capacities in all different ways. And, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about how Christ is the head of the body, and just as the body, our physical bodies, has different members and different functions, the same with the body of Christ. And so there's a discussion about spiritual gifts there given to us in the New Testament. The thing is, all of us have something to do, and all of us can be a blessing to the body of Christ, whether it's, it's the gift of hospitality, opening your home for a home fellowship, whether it's the gift of serving, whether it's the gift of helps, whether it's the gift of teaching, whatever it might be. They, just praying for people, doing practical things to help in the body of Christ. The Lord desires to use every single one of us, and he has something for us to do wherever it might be that he has you planted, whatever it might be that he puts on your heart. So I want to encourage you. And, and here, Moses, you can't do it all. And I've come to the point, I don't want to do it all. I want to see you guys serving, and I want to see the people serving, and it's a tremendous blessing. And so many people serve in so many different ways. People serve in ways that I don't see. People serve in ways outside these four walls. And it blesses me to hear how God uses people and to serve others in practical ways and to help others. And, and my responsibility here is my priority is I, I'll go out and I'll mow the lawn. I, I love sitting on that riding tractor. But my priority is to be praying for you and then be in the study of the Word of God. So that on Wednesday nights come along and Sunday mornings or whatever it might be that I have been searching God's word and studying God's word that I can give you the heart of God that I've been praying for the people those are my priorities and my responsibilities primarily in pastoring this church. It doesn't mean I won't do other things but to be seeking the Lord and, and the apostles would say our responsibility is is to do these things, teaching God's word and, and also to be in prayer. So Moses, here are these men that you are to select. Now it's interesting because there can be a lot of debate about this Moses model of ministry and things like that. There's one commentator that I very much respect. I was reading his comments on this passage and he was saying that Moses made a mistake here. And he was saying that Moses, you know, turned to his father-in-law and, and took the wisdom of the world and, and did this thing. But I don't agree with that. I respectfully disagree uh, with this man, this, this com commentary, that I, I respect him as a great Bible teacher. But um, the thing, the reason that I do is because in verse 23, we see that uh, Jethro says, if you do this thing and God so commands you, in other words, Moses, you make sure that you go to the Lord and pray about it. Go to the Lord and pray about it. Seek the Lord about it. And apparently Moses did that. And so then you will be able to endure and all the people will also go to their place in peace. Things are going to get done. Ministry is going to take place. The people are going to be processed. Disputes are going to be settled. And it's going to function in a way that it, it, it's supposed to. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law in verse 24 and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. So they judged the people in all times, and the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own 
land. And so, Father, we thank you that we can look at the truth of your word once again and uh, 